0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, please read aloud with me. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is the word of God, the people of God this morning, Amen. Father, I ask that you would come and, and bless the preaching of your word. I pray, God, that you would come and, and affect our hearts uh, towards a deeper and greater trust in you because you care for us so deeply. I love you, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So when you first read this text, I imagine that you might uh, notice the same thing that I noticed when I first started studying it. And that is um, that this text, this passage, uh, it's all about uh, what it means uh, to be faithful leaders. Right? It's really just a brief instruction on how to be a faithful leader. I want you to think about leadership with me just for a moment, right? Leadership can be tough. I don't know what realm you lead in. Um, You may not have an official title, but leadership extends all the way from our own personal lives into our homes and our families, out into the community, into our vocation or the place we work. All of us, at some point, have a responsibility to lead, right? Leadership can be tough. It can be lonely. It can be frustrating. It can be downright discouraging in some seasons. But the beauty of leadership is that it can also be really fulfilling. It can be very exciting. It can be downright exhilarating. See, in leadership, you have two front row seats. Your first front row seat is to some of the most horrific things that happen in people's lives. Your second front row seat is to some of the most miraculous things that happen in people's lives. Think about your role in leadership for a moment, whatever your role is. Uh, You may not be the CEO of a company, may not be a boss with employees, may not be an elder or a deacon in this church or any other church, but like I said earlier, the responsibility of leadership is something that I believe is shared by all of us, right? Your role of leadership is, is, is directly Attached to or tied to whatever you are responsible for. So, what are you responsible for? Who are you responsible to? You may be responsible to your children, may be responsible to a spouse, to a group of friends, to your vocation, your job, or maybe you're responsible to some. Defined area of ministry or responsibility maybe in this church or, or maybe some other organization in our community. Think about that area that you are responsible to or for because we all have responsibilities. Therefore, all of us are leaders. And here's the thing. Faithful leaders are in short supply. Faithful, faithful leaders are in short short supply. I don't, I don't think I'm over-exaggerating much at all when I say that the world that we live in is desperate for faithful leadership. I also think this. I think the church should be at the front of the pack in her support of, of leaders who actually meet the biblical criteria for faithful leadership. That's what I don't think. I don't think the world is needs another entity, namely the church, willingly turning a blind eye or a compromising eye to characteristics in leaders that actually grieve the heart of God. Haven't we had enough of that? This is why I think Peter addresses elders, pastors, shepherds, leaders of the church in this passage. Think about what Peter has just said if you were to turn back to chapter 4, verse 17, it's going to be up on the screen for you, you'll notice that Peter makes this really crazy statement. He says, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's kind of a a scary, stop you short kind of a statement, right? It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, when I preached through that text, I think I, I tried to make the point that when we think about judgment in the Bible, we need to think about judgment as two things: corrective, it corrects bad behavior, basically, bad ideology, bad theology, bad living sin. It corrects sin, corrects bad things, right? Judgment is corrective; it's also cleansing. Okay, it's meant to cleanse us and correct, correct us. Um, there is also a there is also a penalty, punishment side of that too which we know Jesus took at the cross. He took our punishment at the cross, what we deserve. But when you look at what uh, Peter is saying about leaders in the context of what he's already said, that judgment is about to begin with the household of God, why why would he tie the two together? Think about that. Think about this. When you evaluate, okay, or when you try to correct a family living in a household, Where do you start? You start with the children or you start with the parents? Typically, you start with the parents, right? Uh, You start at the top. You start with the parents because ultimately parents are the leaders of the household. They are responsible for the household. In the same way, what I think Peter is doing here is he's naturally uh, giving instructions to leaders on how to be a faithful leader. Why? Because he knows that corrective judgment, a cleansing judgment in the household of God, it must begin with leaders first. Leaders go first, right? Uh, they lead the charge. They inspire others to follow in their footsteps. They influence the direction of the family or the organization they serve in. All that being true, one of the things that we need to recognize is that there's never going to be a moment this side of heaven Where an organization, or a church, or a business, or a family does not need to be evaluated and corrected. The moment we start thinking we're good is the moment we're filled with what? Pride. And he says something about that in this text that we just read, right? There will never be a moment this side of heaven where an organization, or a church, or a family does not need to be evaluated and corrected. Part of the hard parts of leadership in in an organization or a family is Discerning what steps to take next as you evaluate, right? It, it might be really easy to sit down one day and evaluate all the bad stuff in a church, an organization, or your own family, right? I Just think about your own family right now, what you wish would change. You've got to probably uh, have a little bit of patience in terms of how far or how fast you try making movement towards change. Uh, you're not going to be able to, if you hear here, in your evaluation you're like lots of stuff needs to change I want to be here you're probably not going to get here overnight if you try to eat an elephant all in one bite what happens to you you die you die but if you eat an elephant one bite at a time you can get through that whole elephant over the course of time okay so as you evaluate your role in leadership in any sector whether that be family church your vocation uh, organization that you do work with in the community, whatever it may be, just just a little word of caution. Just be patient. Give yourself some space. Give yourself some grace and some mercy as you move through it. But don't get stalled out either. Like Don't, don't, don't use that as an excuse to be stalled out and still sitting there, right? At the end of the day, faithful leadership must be constantly developed, constantly changing. Kind of like constantly going to the gym every week, lifting those weights, walking on the treadmill, which I hate, by the way. I hate the treadmill. I love to pump iron, but I know that if I don't walk on the treadmill, I'm not gonna burn enough calories, and I'm not gonna keep my nice, round shape. That's probably due to food. Has nothing to do with my working out. (laughs) Has everything to do with my lack of working out, actually. (laughs) We have gotta constantly be developed as leaders. And in light of that, what Peter does, he lays down some fairly basic instructions on how to lead faithfully. The first thing I see in the text is that faithful leaders are team players. Let me say it again. Faithful leaders are team players. Now, here's the thing we all know. We all know that there is no I in team, right? We all know that? There is no I in team. One of the most destructive characteristics of an unfaithful leader is is the evidence of self-centeredness or egotistical pride? Okay. <clears throat> now, when you think about what I've just said, you think about self-centeredness and egotistical pride. I think most of us, oftentimes, think about the loudest person in the room, right? The one who always talks about himself, the one who's always talking about his accomplishments. It drives you batty, doesn't it? And if it doesn't drive you batty, it might just mean that you're that person. It's possible. Sometimes if it drives you batty, sometimes if it drives you batty, is because you are that person and the other person's talking more about themselves than you can talk about yourself. So I mean, we're a mess. But at the end of the day, we oftentimes think about that loudest person in the room, right? But I don't want to leave out those of us that are more introverted, okay? Um, because the more introverted kind of a leader who sits on the sidelines and quietly pouts because he's not getting his way that leader is also self-centered and egotistical and pride-filled, okay? You just don't see it manifested in the same way. So whether you are loud or quiet is not the issue. The issue is whether or not you're a team player. If You notice Peter, in the first verse of the text, really is a team player, okay? Look at what he says. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What is Peter doing here? Peter is identifying himself as a fellow elder, not the elder. Identifying himself as one of the elders, right? He's a team player. He said, hey, I'm I'm a fellow elder. I have personally watched Jesus suffering at the cross as a perfect and faithful substitute for unfaithful leaders. Identifying himself with the other leaders there. Don't forget about Peter's experience. If you know anything about Peter's story, you might remember Peter's experience at the crucifixion. Where Where was Peter during the crucifixion? Peter was sitting on the sidelines, wasn't he? He was sitting on the sidelines as a leader who denied even knowing jesus and yet peter says that he's a fellow shareholder in the promise of Christ's return it kind of blows your mind doesn't it like peter is a faithful leader who knows what it's like to absolutely fail to absolutely biff it as a leader i mean i think he failed in ways that i would hope to never fail but i'm, I'm pretty certain i've failed in many of the same ways, if not worse. Peter knows what it's like to just totally drop the ball, especially in the team-playing leadership category as his Savior is hanging there on the cross all alone, right? I mean, Peter's the guy that's like, I will always be with you. I'm the rock, right? I don't think he had the people's eyebrow, but he was the rock. And he failed. He epically failed in this team-playing category. He experienced that, but he also experienced the transforming effects of the grace of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. That's why he can say this, and that's why he comes across like a team player. Second thing you might notice in the text is uh, that faithful leaders are actually really good examples. It seems pretty basic, right? Like none of these leadership things that we're gonna find in here are gonna be like big mind blowers. Oh my gosh, I never thought of that. They're really basic. Faithful leaders are good examples. See, it doesn't matter what sector of the world you evaluate right now. It doesn't matter. It's very hard to find faithful leaders who are also good examples. You can find some dudes and get some stuff done. But find a good dude who's a, a good example, just because you get stuff done doesn't mean you're a good example, right? It's Very hard to find faithful leaders who are good examples, okay? All the way from the White House to the church house, to the family house, or whatever house you walk into, good examples are hard to find. And Christians, let's face it, I think in the world we live in, Christians are not necessarily known for their, at least when you're in, in the world, you're outside looking in. Now, if you've been in the church for, you know, 10 plus years and and you're thinking, hey, the church is pretty great at this, you might need to put some different glasses on, step outside your Christian bubble long enough to take a look inside from the outside. The church don't always look so good. Um, I'm not trying to bag on the church because the church is Jesus' bride, right? And and he married a bride that's jacked up. It's jacked up because I'm part of it, because you're part of it. Um, Jesus loves his bride. So I'm not talking trash on Jesus' bride in any way, but just being realistic. from the outside looking in on the church, Um, That the church has not always done so well in this area. Um, Christians can oftentimes be just as guilty of failing to be good examples uh, in the world while pointing pointing their fingers at everything in pop culture that is unholy, right? And just, it feels like, what does that feel like? It feels like hypocrisy. It's probably one of the main accusations that comes from the world against the church. And that's, that's one of the reasons why. And we have to deal with that, right? I believe that Peter, as he's writing this, I think he knows just how easy it would be for believers to become consumed with making war on the culture in the name of both preservation and transformation, right? Want to preserve my religious way of life. Also want to transform the community around me. I mean, it sounds good in theory, right? knows what it's like to walk that line, he did so. I mean, you think of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's trying to preserve his religious way of life when he cuts off the guard's ear who's going to arrest his pastor. Okay, In effect, he pulls out his Glock and goes, bang. Blows off his ear, so he's a bad shot. What does Jesus do? Yeah, Peter, pull out your secondary gun, blow his ear off, other ear off. I mean, no, he picks up the ear and he heals him. So, I mean, I think for Peter, he has an experience of Jesus that just rocks his world, right? So there's this side of preservation. But there's also a side of transformation where I want to see the community change. And I'm going to go to war. I'm going to try to bust through those barriers and just make people listen to me. I mean, This is some of the ways that I think the outside world sees the church because sometimes we Christians do do this, right? I don't think I'm off there. Don't forget, Peter, Peter was a well-known leader. Okay? If there were Facebook feeds then, Fox News or CNN, he would have been on it, talking about Jesus. That's what he would have been doing. And we would have been like, "Hoorah! go Peter! It's our guy, he's up there, he's talking about Jesus. Yes! He was a well-known leader in Jesus' group, Okay. He was oftentimes consumed... Like I said, of making war on the culture, because I think he believed that Jesus was going to overthrow the current social and political structures. That's true. There's no commentary that disagrees with that. All the disciples thought that. I mean, after the resurrection, what are they asking Jesus? Are you going to go take over Rome now? Are you, you going to give us our seat of power back in the community now? Please, Jesus, please. Right? This is leadership stuff. So I don't, think, I don't think that Peter really ever foresaw the night of Christ's crucifixion coming. I don't think he did. I think, I think, literally, I think the cross absolutely rocked Peter's world. I think his picture of faithful leadership got so jacked up that night, and so jacked up through in the midst of his own failures as he came face to face with the, like the sacrificial grace of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. I think it, it turned his leadership paradigm upside down. I think that Peter's leadership was transformed from this self-centered, kind of self-preserving, uh, like self-promoting, kind of this egotistical, power-hungry, cowardly realm of the world he lived in. I Peter became a leader who became known for self-sacrifice, became known for humility, known for servanthood, known for courage. Why? Because he caught a vision of a kingdom and a shepherding king and a shepherding savior that's not part of this world. That's what I think happened with Peter. Peter quite simply became a faithful leader by the grace of God who was a good example. Which is why I think he possessed the moral and the spiritual authority to instruct the leaders of the church to shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And the chief shepherd, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I've always said, if you've known me very long, you've heard me say this, and it's not, I didn't start it. Whoever started it, that person needs the credit, you can Google it and find out, but you cannot give what you do not have. That's just a timeless principle, right? If I don't have $10 in my pocket, I ain't got it to give, you, right? If you don't possess the characteristics of a faithful leader, then you cannot pass those character traits along to others. Doesn't mean you can't get it. But if you don't have it, you can't pass it along. And as I've already said, Peter had not always possessed those character traits of a faithful leader, especially when it pertains to being a good example. I would not have pointed to Peter at some stage in his life and said, that's a good example of a leader to follow. No. Truth be told, every leader in the Bible, there are seasons, major seasons of their lives where I would tell my kids, do not follow his example. It's a bad example, right? Sometimes I look at my kids and I say, don't follow my example in this, because I was being stupid. Right? But Peter had met the crucified risen and returning Christ. He had been transformed into a faithful leader who was a good example. Peter was able to, in this passage, give away what he had received. He was able to instruct the leaders of the church to be shepherds of the sheep that had been purchased by the blood of Jesus. He was able to instruct them to lead with energy and zeal. Don't be lazy in your leadership, right? Lead with energy and zeal. Don't do it uh, just begrudgingly because you have to. Lead because the cross of Christ has created a deep, convicting want to. It's a big difference between have to and want to. When you have to, there's no vision, and you're not going to produce any results. When you want to because you recognize what God has done for you, man, you can go a lot of places then, right? Peter was able... um, to instruct these leaders to lead faithfully. Uh, Not for what they're going to get out of the leadership experience, right? Like typically in the world we live in, uh, you lead because it's going to make you feel good or you're going to become famous, you're going to get some fortune, you might even get some friendships out of the deal. (coughs) Certainly not supposed to lead like like abusive, uh, manipulative bullies either, right? With some kind of underlying... Self-serving motivation. Uh, he's saying you're supposed to lead as a good example who, who knows what. That your reward in heaven is going to far surpass the rotting rewards of this earth. I mean, it just always surprised me every time I catch myself falling into these bad leadership moments, right? Where I was just looking for some kind of reward here on earth. And I'm like, you know what's going to rot away anyways? Why was I thinking about that so much? And why did I get my eyes off of an eternal prize in heaven that will never rot? Why would I trade that in for that? Well, because I'm broken. And I'm a sinner, right? You know? And I need Jesus. In those moments, I can go, all right, I biffed it. I screwed it up. You see, a leader who lives in the shadow of the bloody cross, a leader who lives in the doorway of an empty tomb, a leader who lives with the promise of eternity, heaven, in the pocket of his heart, that leader is going to be faithful in his or her example. Because their model of leadership, whether it's in politics or in the home or the city or in the church, their model of leadership has been radically transformed by the example of somebody that Peter calls the chief shepherd. And that chief shepherd gave his life for filthy, rotten, rebellious, backstabbing, runaway sheep. That's the story. Right? That changes you. It does for me. What does that picture... Of, of a perfect shepherd giving away his life for runaway sheep do for you. I, for me, it's deeply humbling. It leads me to the last point. Faithful leaders are submissive and humble. So the model of leadership that we see all over the place is the kind of leadership that I think is full of self-centered pride, self-advancing ego, right? Self-centered pride, self-advancing ego. We want to advance self. Think of it this way in categories that might be a little different. Men. Think of us men that are married maybe, even those who aren't married, you might think of it this way, like men who serve their wives sometimes fall into this trap of only serving the wife for sex. Right? You're only serving her because of what you're going to get out of it. Um, women, I'm not a woman, so I'm doing my best. Okay, Women, I think, I know some women, so I should, probably should have asked before I said this. Anyways, women, women, <laughs> I'll find out when I get home today. How about that? Okay. <laughs> women, I think could fall into this trap of only serving their families to gain affection, right? Like if I serve my family, they're going to love me type of thing. Politicians, I don't think we have any politicians in the room, but just in case, a politician might be listening online and I doubt it. Politicians might seek seats of influence only to gain power. CEOs can rule their companies with iron fists only to line their bank accounts with the profits of other people's labor. Church leaders, not that we can't, not that we may not uh, be um, in danger of this here, um, but when you look at church leaders all across the TV right now, what do you see? You see church leaders spiritually manipulating their flocks, so they can spend their time flying around in personal jets and their thousand-dollar suits, staying in million-dollar hotels, right? But that's the picture the world sees too. But the world around us. Here's the thing: what I'm getting at is the world around us, even sectors of the church world, don't have to offer when it comes to the picture of faithful leadership that actually submits in humility to a power that's bigger than itself. Peter. Peter had experienced the bottomless pit of leadership according to the world's values. And here's what I think Peter knew. I think Peter knew what it meant to be a faithful leader who was submitted in humility to the sacrificial king of the universe. This is why he can say in verses 5-7, through look at it with me. He can say, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I'm going to make a comment here. Um, I probably should do more study on this just to make sure. Um, And I meant to this week, but I didn't. So test me to see if this is right or not. In my opinion... Um, when he says you who are younger be subject to the elders, he's not talking about those who are younger and older physically. The reason I say that is because the context here is about elders, and and it's interpreted pastor-shepherd. It's interpreted leaders. So when he's talking about younger here, I don't think he's expecting that elders and pastors should be the oldest men in the church. Okay? I think when he says younger, although it can apply to people who are older and younger, but I'll tell you what, I've met some 15-year-old kids that are probably wiser than me. So I think this has more to do with a spiritual maturity. Those who are of you who are younger in the faith submit to those who are older in the faith, the elders of the church. Okay. Now he only camps out there for a moment, right? Because he moves right on and he says, "Clothe yourselves, all of you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud." Now can you think about what that would be like to be opposed by God? You ever had an opponent? Somebody you fought in a ring? Maybe you fought on your video game? (laughs) I don't know. Video games are popular, right? Uh, Maybe you sparred with them. Something. Like somebody who was your opponent. Like you tried to win the race, right? I guess picture of God being my opponent, my enemy. For him to oppose me and come after me because of my pride, that's, that's scary, but also at the same time it's freeing. Because if I belong to him, then if he's coming after me and opposing me, he's opposing that which is inside of me, that is making war against him. And his desire is to humble me and humble you, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, th- therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, when Peter wrote this, I, I think Peter knew. I think He knew what it was like to be a proud leader, We've already examined a little bit of Peter's life, right? He knew what it was like to be a proud leader who'd been humbled by his own sin. I'll tell you something. I don't think there's anything that's much more humbling than coming face to face with my own brokenness. You know? Like, I can be pretty broken or hurt by somebody else's brokenness. But when the moment happens that I look in the mirror and I go, man, you're jacked up then I think something happens in terms of being humble. I'm, I'm not the man that I like, constantly paint in my head that I am, right? I find out that I'm, I'm not as good as I really think I am. And, and actually, I'm probably worse than I think I am too. Um, those are humbling moments. And Peter had found that moment. He had experienced that moment where he was humbled by his own sin. And then, then he was simultaneously exalted by Jesus. Remember when Jesus walked with him next to the water, and I've talked about that many times, and I can just see after his denial of Jesus, and he's feeling full of shame, he's feeling full of guilt, and they're walking along, and and Jesus, three times, hey, do you love me? Right? I've shared this, but hey, do you love me like a friend? Hey, do you love me like a brother? Hey, do you love me enough to give your whole life away from me? And every time, Peter's like, yeah, 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 I love you. I, I love you. I can, I can sense and feel the simultaneous feeling of shame and guilt, but also freedom as he, as he caught the, the look of his Savior at him. I think when you and I fall into sin, don't we normally feel a little bit shameful or guilty, right? When we turn our eyes down, we, we don't want to even see ourselves in the mirror. We don't think Jesus even wants to look at us. But the reality is it's in that broken place that Jesus comes and he looks right at you. And the look in his eyes is not discussed. The look in his eyes is not anger because you effed it up again. That's not the look in Jesus' eyes. I think the look in Jesus' eyes is like, hey, I I love you. I gave my life for you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not angry with you. I'm not disgusted by you. I just want you to come and give me all that mess in your life and and let me fix it up. I think that's the picture of who Jesus is Sometimes we just have the wrong vision of Jesus, right? Isn't that right? And Peter, Peter had met that Jesus after his failure. And the picture that he got was like, hey, I'm not disappointing you. I love you. I love you like a friend. I love you like a brother. I I love you like a savior, somebody who loves you unconditionally. I see every bad thing about you, and and I love you more than that peter had experienced that he was exalted by a savior who joyfully submitted to the will of the father in a horrific death on a cross for his enemies so that we could become family what else what else could ever motivate a sin-filled person to submit in humility without it just being like i have to submit i guess Conclusion, I would say that I think the key in this whole text, and if it's not, it's not, but I'll tell you this whether it's the key or not, I think it's the key. I think it's one central thing at the end, you know? But I really think it's the key. If not, it's at least the thing that really jumped out at me this week as I was looking at it, and it's in verse 7. Peter basically wraps everything up in this neat, tidy little package. When he says that faithful leaders can be team-playing good examples. They can submit in humility as they practice casting all their anxieties on him because he cares for you. Think about this. Worry is a powerful motivator, isn't it? It's a powerful motivator that has the ability to completely destroy a leader. Like, think about all the stupid stuff you've done based on worry. Okay, You get worried about something, you react, you respond, you do something stupid. Right? I've done it. If you worry about finances, that could cause you to overwork and neglect other important things like your family. Right? Um, if you're worrying about whether or not uh, someone loves you or not, What can that cause you to do, that kind of worry? It can cause you to manipulate people, right? Try to make them love you. But if you worry about a child or or a friend who's making really bad life decisions, what can that, how does that motivate you? It could motivate you to fly off the handle, right? Or just to completely disengage. Uh, If you're worried about how bad you might fail in a dating relationship, or if you're married, And you're worried about how bad it might be if you were actually honest with your spouse about some things. Basically, if if you're worried about being intimate, because that's true intimacy, it's not sex. True intimacy is being known and being fully loved. So if if you're worried about what might happen and getting into a dating relationship with somebody or worried about being honest in your own relationship with your spouse, that, that can lead you to live a life of secret bondage to pornography right that's what worry can do if you're worried about whether you're going to say the right things or not how does that motivate you it can motivate you to stay silent when you need to actually speak against something that's evil evil at the end of the day worry is a very powerful motivator especially when it comes to leadership right it can totally destroy a leader's ability to be a team player to be a good example To be submissive and humble. That's really all the bad news. The good news is the beauty of this text. It's the beauty of the author, not just the human author, Peter, but the human author right alongside the divine author who chose to have this broken man write this for us. Right? When you think about the beauty of the scriptures, You see the beauty of the gospel. Peter, he failed in all of the instructions that he gives here. Every last one of them. Study his life, it's obvious. But it didn't stop him from giving these instructions. Why? Because I think Peter had learned the secret of casting all of his worry upon the whip-scarred shoulders of a Savior who cared for him enough to go to the cross in his place. To die a sinner's death for him. To leave the tomb empty three days later and to give him the promise of eternity with a father who's not disappointed in him. A father who's not angry at him. A father who would never leave him or forsake him. But a father who cared for him deeply. Despite his own failures. So has your leadership been infected with worry lately? Here's the thing: the Father cares for you, and his shoulders are big enough to carry your doubt and your fears. Have you struggled with being a team player? Maybe because you've been too worried about yourself? Hear this again. The Father cares for you, and his shoulders are are big enough to carry your doubts, and your fears, and your failures. Have you failed at being a good example of a faithful leader in your home, or your your marriage, or your relationships, or your workplace? Hear this, the Father cares for you, and his shoulders are big enough to carry your doubts, your fears, and even the biggest failures that you don't think you can share with somebody. Have you struggled with being submissive or humble? because you're worried about protecting your own lot in life, hear this one more time. The Father cares for you, and His shoulders are big enough for anything that you bring to Him. There's nothing that's too big for Him to carry. My prayer for you, for I, for us, is that we would find grace and mercy for our worry at the foot of the cross. My prayer for us is that we would find encouragement and strength in the doorway of an empty tomb. My prayer for us is that we would find courage and joy in the promise of heaven. Because leadership is lonely, right? Leadership is hard. Leadership is a daily grind that doesn't always get immediate results. But if you cast all of your anxiety, all of your worry on Him who cares for you, then you will find the grace to lead faithfully as a team player, as a good example, and as a submissive and humble person in the shadow of a bloody cross, in the doorway, on empty tomb, in the light of the hope of heaven. Amen. Would you stand and pray with me, please? Father, as we close, I ask, Lord, that you would come now, give encouragement and strength For those of us that are in this room who have just been slugging it out in leadership, help us to look to you and your work at the cross, the empty tomb, and the promise of heaven. Help us to find reassurance and rest there. I trust you to do that work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.